everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the pleasure of welcoming Nick Sonnenberg to the show today. He is an entrepreneur. He's an Inc. columnist. He's a guest lecturer at Columbia University and the author of Come Up for Air, How Teams Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. He is also the founder and CEO of Leverage, a leading operational efficiency consultancy. Nick and his team have worked with organizations of all sizes and across all industries from high growth startups to Fortune 10 companies. Welcome, Nick, to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Well, I'm super excited about getting into this because I know many of us are drowning at work, um, yep. especially uh, around tools and systems. But before <laughs> we start, I'm going to do what I call bullish and bearish. Three quick questions. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. First one, chat GPT. Bullish or bullish. bearish? All right. Virtual reality in the workplace. Uh, bearish short-term potentially bullish long-term. Okay, fair. The four-day work week. Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to say bearish just to be controversial because I know everyone's bullish on that one. <laughs> and I'm happy to talk more about why I'm bearish on it. Well, I know you have an interesting background. Uh, we'll get back to that, why you're bearish on it. But I know you have an interesting background uh, working on Wall Street prior to all the things you're doing now. Um, yep. How has that sort of influenced the work? I'm going to guess it helped get you where you are now. You know, I, Wall Street is such a broad term. The specific stuff that I was doing in Wall Street was called high-frequency trading. So I was developing algorithms and coding computers to trade stocks at microsecond speeds, all fully automated based off of you know math that I'd create. I would say that the number one thing I learned there was you know, the value of time, you know, microseconds can literally mean millions in that space. So I learned to appreciate really deconstructing something very complex into the sum of like micro steps, micro processes, and being able to celebrate the small win. If you got like one step a little bit better out of a thousand steps, you know, knowing kind of the impact that that can make. And that's kind of influenced the lens at which I look at process and running business. It's like celebrate the small wins, looking at this complex thing and being able to simplify it and deconstruct it into kind of the sum of all these blocks, as well as, you know, developing a muscle for experimentation and like treating things like a science experiment. And like you have a hypothesis, now we test the hypothesis and did it work or not? And what are we going to tweak tomorrow? And that mentality applies to so many aspects of business marketing, you know, I'm constantly, you know, pushing back my team. How do we know we're doing as well? Like, what did you test today? What did we learn that we're going to put back into the machine tomorrow? It could be a different subject line. It could be the call to action in an email. And it's the same kind of thinking that I would do in trading. You know, you have an idea. Well, the beauty of one, one thing I really did appreciate is you can have an idea and the market will tell you if your idea is good or not. You know, I have an idea. I add it to my algorithm. I tweak my algorithm. And now... Tomorrow I can actually live test it. You know, maybe my back test said that it was smart, but now I can live test it in production and see, you know, is it working or not? And I get an immediate feedback loop and there's no subjectivity to it. Now, of course, you could have bad luck and you deploy it on a day where something weird happens. But, you know, over time, you know, if you have an idea, you get this feedback loop that you can put back into the into the system. And I think that's a, a muscle that I developed that's quite unique. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple things in there that, of what you just said. You know, the millisecond absolutely lends itself to productivity. 
there's a part of me that believes like we've almost over-focused on productivity. And then I feel like some companies don't focus enough on productivity. Like I feel like it's the spectrum. I think in general, we've, uh, we've under, under-focused as a society on it. How do you define productivity? Well, there's many different definitions, but one thing to, to distinguish too, I mean, like there's synonyms of productivity, efficiency, let's just define it first. So I like to use the word efficiency instead of productivity, because I feel if productivity implies more of an individual focus and really everything I'm about is more of a team or an organization level focus. So I tend to use language like efficiency because I'm trying to not be a productivity expert you know, we're trying to be in the space of team and operational level efficiency. You know, it's maximal output, minimal input, you know, reducing as much friction as possible to spend the largest percentage of time on high value activities. And I, and I say that I think we've been undervaluing it because I think, I think that in general, valuations of companies, especially in the tech sector, have been very large multiples, which has incentivized people to really optimize for growth and invest more time, energy, and attention into marketing and sales because that's what they were incentivized to do. And I think, you know, now the world has shifted, you know, we're going through a recession and a whole bunch of weird economic times and valuations have been adjusted to really be lower multiples on revenue and more, more towards profitability when we've seen layoffs as a function of that across the board. And I think as now there's more of a focus on profitability rather than Revenue, I think now there's more focus shifting towards efficiency, productivity, whatever we want to say. But I think for the last decade or so, it's been underemphasized. Yeah, I wonder if it's size. You know, I wonder if in smaller companies or high growth companies, right, they sort of put those metrics on the side because they're so focused on hyper growth. I don't know, you know, versus it being when they're a little more mature and there's a little more rigor in the business that they get a little more focused on that efficiency. I think definitely the stuff, I think when you're a small company, you just got to survive and you got to figure out how you can generate revenue and make payroll. I think when you're larger and you have bullets to fire, you can afford to invest in foundational things where efficiency is a foundational thing. And I think it's been underemphasized in part because it's a bit invisible. It's not like sales and marketing where there's like an immediate kind of back to my trading example. I make a tweak I see in my PL profit and loss immediately. Did it work? You invest in hiring more salespeople or doing something different in sales and marketing. You could see immediately, like, did I generate more leads? You get that fast feedback loop. And what's that famous quote? What you know, measure what matters. Like seeing data and seeing the feedback loop quickly makes it easier to invest time, attention, and energy and resources into something. And I think with efficiency and productivity, since there's no kind of clock running so you can see, oh, we just saved five minutes a week by doing this, you might know there's an issue, but since you don't get like such a clear metric of a feedback loop, I think till now it's also impacted how people have prioritized. But when budgets are cut, you're on hiring freezes, the only way that you can continue to grow and, and finish all the projects that you need to finish and all the initiatives is to get more output out of every per you have less less resources available you have to get the most out of them so i think now people are like okay i guess we finally really have to pay attention to this stuff and to be honest like when we work with companies because we have a training and consulting company that does all this stuff 
and I wrote a book about this stuff, like in, in our experience working with thousands of teams, you could get an extra 20 to 40% out of every person. It's probably one of the best investments that people could make. It's just not one that, you know, like marketing and sales where you immediately see in your CRM, like Salesforce or, you know, in, a, in your QuickBooks account, you see like an immediate like increase of revenue. But what you will see is you can save a ton of money by not needing to hire people and not having to add all the extra complexity of managing large teams and organizations by getting an extra, you know, even if it's an extra 5% out of people, it's huge. But literally we're seeing an extra business day a week per employee and companies just by removing the scavenger hunt and all the crap that's just wasting time, searching for lost messages, lost documents, things just being disorganized. It's really quick to clean up. I don't know if it's quick, but it, it is important to clean up. I'll, get, I'll give you a stat from MuleSoft that the average enterprise has about 900 or so unique applications in it, and only 28% of them are integrated. Hmm. So, you know, if you take out HR and finance, like those will probably never be integrated. 900 applications? That sounds yeah. massive. Yeah, average enterprise. And now that number is actually up into, that was the 21, 2021 number, I think, end of 21. Now I think it's up in the 1100 range for an enterprise. So to your point, like that I'm hunting and pecking, well, if only 28% of them are integrated and you oh. take out HR and you take out finance as things that may never be integrated for obvious reasons, right? The remainder of it, let's call it, you know, you still have so many tools and systems, which is really probably the core of what you talk about that doesn't allow humans to be efficient or effective. So I think the biggest issue at least in my experience, isn't the issue of integration. It's the issue of people understanding the purpose of all these tools. And that's the core of my book. I, I, I break down the needs of systems into three buckets, communication tools, planning tools, and resource tools. And 900 is, is a lot. I mean, I'm guessing like these companies have tens of thousands of employees and there's like some weird department specific tools that a lot of them are using. But for the core collaboration needs of any team, enterprise or non, you need to communicate with people. So you need tools like Slack or Microsoft Teams for for communicating. You need email like Gmail and Outlook. So those are, say, two tools. You need an external and internal communication tool. You need a planning tool, like a project management tool, like an Asana or something like that. So that's a third tool. And then you need to document your knowledge. So you have tools for internal wikis, and maybe you have a process tool as well. So you need like at least five tools and maybe you've got a few others like Zoom and others that are you know, nice to have too that are pretty critical. So maybe you've got 10. But the most important thing is people understand not just how to use these tools, but when to use the tools and when not to. The biggest issue that we see at Leverage with companies is there's no training in terms of teaching people the purpose of what problems should you solve in Slack versus Gmail versus Salesforce versus the next tool. And because people aren't aligned on the purpose of these tools and where should information go, it creates this scavenger hunt. Now, integrations are great and they're super valuable and important, but I think it's secondary to people even understanding the purpose of the tool and under what situation should you even open up the tool in the first place. And there's a lack of education right now. There's all these tools and people are investing a lot of money in it, but they're only scratching the surface of the value they can get because there's a lot of personal preference. Like some people prefer to use Gmail, some prefer to use Slack, some prefer to use another tool. And then before you know it, everyone's just operating on their own personal preference and it's not a unified strategy across the team. And when you unify everyone, 
and everyone's aligned on the purpose and they know exactly where to go to to do something, that's where we see these exponential time savings. And within that, where would you put sales and marketing tools and customer service tools in those three buckets? So like a CRM, for example? Yeah. CRM could be CRM, right? Could be, you know, some people don't have everything in one tool. You know, it could be a lead generation tool. It could be a quoting tool. It could be a communication tool within it. I mean, right. So. Yeah. Then there's like kind of miscellaneous, I would say, like where you put kind of all of those. So we would kind of bucket all those in like what we call resources as well, where it's kind of like, you know, you, you know, CRM is just like a database basically. Right. So we, I would probably put that, even though it's not exactly where you'd think like is like a wiki, it's still like you go somewhere cause there's like an official source of truth that's constantly getting updated. So it's closest to that versus the others. You could argue there needs to be like maybe a fourth bucket, but like CPR just kind of is like nice and clean and simple. And like, I would argue what you described, I would call a resource in the resource bucket. Yeah, because, you know, I've done a ton of research on sort of the tools that get used and the biggest disconnect on efficiency and and capability is at the customer facing employees, right? Those teams, right? That's where they're unaware of the reason for the tool and the value of the tool and the where of the tool and the how of the tool. Like that's where it really falls apart, at least what I've seen. Yeah. And like the CPR framework that we talk about in the book and and what we focus on is really for the core of collaboration. And then there's going to be specific department needs kind of out that you still need to be thinking about. But I'm just talking about every team, every organization. If you want to be a high performing team to collaborate properly, you need to be thinking about those those buckets. But that's kind of a minimum, not a maximum. Like there's still a need industry specific, team specific, that you're going to need to go beyond that and really become, you know, well ingrained in more tools than just CPNR. So if, if someone's listening and they go, great, you know, I'm a small or mid-sized business. Thankfully we don't have a lot of tools, but I would agree with Nick that we probably don't have a clear definition of when, why, and how, right? What's, what's, where do they sort of start in beginning this CPR process? I usually start with email because no matter who you are, what company, you could be a huge enterprise, you could be a small startup, you're using Gmail or Outlook most likely, right? No matter what, like, and then all the others that I've rattled off, you may or may not have heard of, you may or may not be using properly. Everyone uses email and on average, we see you can save three to five hours a week per employee just cleaning up how you use email and getting to inbox zero. So I usually suggest people to start with that that gets you back close to half a day a week, just depending on the volume that you're getting. But that could be a complete game changer. And then once you've kind of solved that. And how, and so have, before, before you jump on the how you solve that, like, how do you actually solve that? How do you say, right. I have this, you know, totally unwieldy, I open up my inbox, it gives me anxiety at 8 a.m. And at 5 p.m., I'm totally wiped. <laughs> so we have an entire training program and framework that takes people through this. But to give you like a one minute summary of it, we talk about inbox zero, which is using your email like a to-do list that other people can add to and getting your inbox down to zero, not red or unread zero, but like just zero. It doesn't matter if it's red or unread. A lot of people think that they're managing their email properly, but it's just that they've read all of their emails and they're marking three emails unread. So they think they've only got three in their inbox. No, if like you got a hundred thousand in your inbox, 
and three are bold, you still have a hundred thousand in your inbox. When we say zero, we mean zero. And so the first is how to think about email. It's an external to-do list that other people can add to. The best way to get to inbox zero is email zero. So really understanding when should you even use email in the first place? A lot of people use email as both external communication, internal communication, project management. So, you know, first acknowledge it's for external. You should be using a tool like Slack for internal communication. You should be using a project management tool for all the tasks and projects. So that helps to eliminate some of the volume coming in. Then there's three things. We teach a system called RAD, Reply, Archive, Defer. Those are the three things you can do with each email. Most people aren't utilizing things like the snooze button in emails where you can magically have an email disappear and reappear in the future wherever you want. People aren't taking advantage of the search functionality. They've got too many folders in their email. And so there's like, again, it's like the sum of a lot of little tricks or little settings tricks that you want to be doing in Gmail or Outlook as well. And it's the sum of about 10 different things that we teach that ultimately allows you to do kind of a one-time reset on your email where we get you kind of one time to archive a whole bunch of stuff after we've taught you the tools. And then we give you the tools to maintain zero. So then it's not when you open your email, you're overwhelmed. You actually look forward to it because now you know you're not missing opportunities that are slipping through the cracks like, like used to happen. Fair enough. I don't know if I have 100,000, but I have a lot. But I use it as my to-do. However, I, I I use the ones that that are bolded as my to-do. Yeah. But but I'm but I'm pretty good at like you know moving. And then obviously I work at Salesforce, so we have Slack. So you know there is this cross-functional right where a lot of stuff has quote unquote internally moved to Slack, which has also freed up. I mean that was the goal, right, to free up the inbox and and to give us more structure. But you know, going back to the method you were going to say before I interrupted you on how you actually get to inbox zero, you were stepping down the CPR framework. So I think starting with email is a great one because it's a quick win. No matter what you do, I can guarantee there's probably hundreds of opportunities that you have right now to be more efficient. You can't do all of them at the same time. You can't partially roll out Slack, partially fix your email, partially, you know, you're much better off picking one thing and doing it right. And it's really important too that you get your team aligned because a lot of tools, you only get value, especially if it's a collaboration tool, you only get value if everyone's aligned and know what you know, which is how and when we use it in our team or at our company. So you have to do one thing at a time and then move on to the next, you know, once you start getting the benefit. Email is great because it's a quick win. It only takes a couple hours to train people and get them to zero. Even if you're listening, you've got a quarter million emails. Like we've done this with people with literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of emails. We're talking a matter of a few hours to do a reset and a training, and then you're off to the races and you're saving hours a week. Now with all that freed up time, learn the next tool and get that right. And it's kind of just like like a snowball effect. Like when you do like return on investment in investing in stocks, it's the same thing. It's like a return on time. Invest a few hours, learn one thing, and within a couple of weeks, you're getting back even more than what you invested. And now let's reinvest that freed up time into the next thing. Well, you, you talk about time not being linear. You know, mm-hmm. you, can you elaborate a little bit on that? So talk about two things. One is saving time. Like how can teams free up that business day a week to reinvest that time into better, better use activities? But it's also not just about saving time. It's about optimizing time because time isn't all worth the same. That's why, what I mean by not linear. For example, 9 a.m. on a Monday, 
is the most valuable time slot on my calendar for the week. I've just had a my weekend, woken up, went to the gym, had a coffee. My brain is firing at full horsepower, right? So that that's a very valuable time slot. Fast forward to Friday at seven o'clock after 100 Zoom calls for the week and meetings and everything else. My brain's probably fried by seven o'clock. And then, you know, if you want to even take it a step further, say I have no laptop and I'm in the back of an Uber and my brain is fried. That time slot isn't as valuable of a time slot as my 9 a.m. on a Monday, right? So think about time not being linear. Think about your calendar being more like a heat map versus every, every slot on the calendar being worth the same. And if your time is, say, $100 an hour, just making up a round number, maybe it's 500 an hour at the 9 a.m. on a Monday. Maybe it's 20 an hour on that 7 o'clock on a Friday, just to give an example. Now, some people are night owls. Some are morning people. So adjust this concept to whatever you know is your unique situation. But I can guarantee you, whether you're a night owl or a morning person, not every time slot's worth the same to you. So with all that being said, when you're looking at the meetings that you're having, so much of meetings could be done asynchronously. So if it's an hour meeting and half of the time is people just reporting out, sharing screens, talking at you, make it a 30-minute meeting and have them just screen record themselves. There's tools like Loom or other screen recording tools. Have them send it to you. And now you've freed up high-value, really precious time. And now watch that call when you're in that back of the Uber and you're not doing anything of that significance. And so you're not saving any time. You're just doing like a time shift, but you're freeing up 30 minutes of really high valuable time for you to do some critical things that require high brain horsepower. Well, you also, you also say that meetings are, you know, one of the largest expenses and drainers of kind of productivity, you know, so going back to what you were just saying, do I need this meeting? Can I send it in a loom? Yeah. Do I need to be there? And so what do you suggest as it relates to meetings? Because I think we can all listening, uh, you know, agree there's no shortage of meetings. Meetings cost billions and billions of dollars of wasted productivity a year. And the funny thing is a lot of these meetings are about how to be more productive. The things that you should always be thinking about is like, what's the cost of this meeting? The cost of a meeting is everyone's hourly rate, you know, times the length of time of the meeting. So the things you should be thinking about, does this meeting need as many people as, as there are? Does it need to be as long as it is? Uh, Does it need to be the frequency that it is? Sometimes you just have like weekly standing meetings. Could that be biweekly? And then lastly, does it even need to be a meeting at all? Could it be done fully asynchronous? Because meetings are disruptive. If they're run properly and there's an agenda and a purpose, it's great. Could really accomplish a lot. But too many meetings that aren't well-structured and hyper-focused around coming together to solve a specific problem or, or, or accomplish a specific thing, that can start adding up very quickly. I started doing two things. One, when I got invited to a meeting, unless it was like, you know, something I had to be at. So take those aside. But if I got invited randomly, something came to my inbox, right? And I'm like, I don't know this person. I don't know why I'm in this meeting. Like, so I would reply back and say, hey, can you tell me why you'd like me in this meeting? And is there an agenda? And sometimes I'll get back, oh, I just thought you'd think it was interesting, thought you'd want to listen in. I'm like, yep, I'm going to decline, right? Or this is why, and then and then kind of, but we don't have an agenda. I'm like, hey, can you get me an agenda? So I know, you know, whatever, A, B, C. And that has really helped me be able to get out of meetings that were, to your point, way too many people. Nah. That, you know, I don't say anything. There's no value in me being there. If it's just a FYI, then send me a Slack. 
right? Yeah. I, I don't need to be in it. Totally. Um, and those two things alone really helped me cut back on those unnecessary meetings. And I will tell you just internally here, our meetings have definitely gotten smaller because we've gotten way more asynchronous. A hundred percent. But it goes, you can swing the pendulum too far that way too, which we've done in the past. I feel like at Leverage, we're like a little laboratory guinea pig of like testing these things to develop best practice and IP and thought leadership. But we have a policy, no agenda, no meeting. We've been using a tool called Fellow app for housing agendas, and that's been really helpful. Because another thing too with an agenda is it allows you, you don't want you know, your internal communications to get unwieldy and just every time someone has an idea, they ping you and it distracts you. So what you want though is if, if you have a meeting next week and it's not urgent, have them add it to the agenda, not ping you in your communication system and distract you and take you out of kind of whatever flow state you're in. So agendas serve both it allows you to house non-urgent things that could be dealt with next week or at a future time, but without the anxiety of forgetting about it, that's going to get lost. And it helps you make sure that you're on track to accomplish what you need to accomplish. Well, Nick, this has been a great conversation. Um, we could keep going, just but in, in light of giving people time back, being more productive, yeah. giving them a couple quick tips so they can go on. Uh, you know, If you've been listening and you want to learn more about um, Nick's work, he's got his book, Come Up for Air, How Teams Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. But Nick, where else can people uh, keep in touch with you and the work that you're yeah. doing? So comeupforair.com is where you can find all information about the book. We've got a bunch of free resources, links to, to get the book, so on and so forth. If you need further training or you're interested in, in learning more for your team, we have getleverage.com. Is, Leverage is our training and consulting company. We have programs to teach best practices that we've developed with all these tools. And I've recently released my own podcast, theoptimizedpodcast.com, which I co-host with Jay Abraham, which is fun. And we do live consultations. And then lastly, at the beginning, I said I was bearish on the four-day work week. Let me just address that really quick. I think that there's aspects of it which are interesting, but I was saying I'm bearish because I do. I think that long-term, it's not whether it should be five days, four days, three days. You could argue any of them. I think ultimately the best way isn't based off of number of days. It's based off of aligning of what success looks like. Like what are your key objectives, key results, whatever goal setting framework, being really clear of what success looks like on a weekly, quarterly period, whatever, and having a framework to hold people accountable. And then at that point, you shouldn't even be talking about number of days or time. You should really just be talking about outcomes and I not care about what hours people work, where they work, when they work. And really, you know, as long as people are achieving what you have agreed upon, that should be really the most, the most important thing that matters. Amazing. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, for those great parting words, great advice. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this episode of the What's Next podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave some feedback on the shows, and we will make sure that we continue to bring you great guests such as Nick. So thank you for joining us here today.